Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we've got S&P off year-to-date 20%, NASDAQ close to 30%. you got bonds down double digits. I mean, where do you go? How does your alternative investment portfolio looking? Let's check in with some folks on the private equity side. Andrea Auerbach, she's the head of private investments at Cambridge Associates. Andrea, talk to us about the private equity markets. I mean, is it tough to get deals done? Do you have to mark down your existing portfolio? How's the private equity market dealing with this volatility this year? Yeah, a great question. Good, a uh, good morning to you both. Um, in terms of the private equity markets at the moment, it is to say tough to get deals done is an interesting question. I, I think all parties have moved to the sidelines to try to see what exactly is going to happen as market conditions continue to unfurl in front of us. Right. So a lot of transaction activity is stalling at the moment. Um, and so folks are investors are waiting to see how do I make adjustments to my projections? What price am I willing to pay, et cetera? In terms of the markdowns, though, great question. Private equity um, it is a fairly liquid asset class, right? You, you invest, the, the group you invest with buys something, presumably works with that asset and that company, holds it for a number of years privately, and then sells it at some point in the future, right? So things unfold over a multi-year period rather than on a daily, monthly, or quarterly period, as you as you all obviously observe in the public markets. And so in terms of markdowns, um, and the other element that I should note for you and, and your listeners is that private equity, because it's it's private, it's a little, it's a liquid, we often have a bit of a lag in the reporting, right? So the quarterly marks, if you will, exactly. is sort of a bit of a reference point for 1Q, Um Private equity, uh, the private equity um, benchmark that we track was down roughly 35 basis points relative to what the public markets were down in one queue, just to give you a sense. So it will take well, a what, few what, what, what do you think it is right now? I mean, um, I had a friend who inv- invests big sums in private equity, and he said he's worried they're not marking to market. Well, I, I, it's a great question. And, and what happens is in private equity is you mark to market in different ways, right? Instead of just taking what the public equity markets are telling you, there are multiple ways to value a private business. And most investors take a look at all the different ways you can you can value that private business and thread the needle through all of those valuations. 
So we don't have all precincts reporting. So Cambridge Associates tracks this on a quarterly basis. We don't have all precincts in yet for 2Q, but preliminary returns look like private equity will be down 400 basis points from our benchmark. So our benchmark is looking like it's going to come down again about 400 basis points. Still not in lockstep with the public markets, though, for the reasons I just told you. All right. So, Andre, I mean, I guess the, the theme over the last 20 years has just been you know, in terms of asset allocation, a big, big move into alternative investments. I'm thinking about the average, yeah. you know, um, university endowment, for, for example. So there's a tons of equity capital uh, there. Is this a buying opportunity of inordinate magnitude? And if so, can you get debt capital to fund the deals as well? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. The amount of dry powder, right, the amount of capital that's been committed by endowments, foundations, pensions, um, families, right? Uh, every, you know, there are many types of investors that, that put capital into the private equity markets, the private investment markets. There is a lot of dry powder waiting to get in, right? Hundreds of billions of dollars. I think in the U.S. we are tracking it around $700 billion. To give you a sense of what's but there's always a lot of dry powder. Wing. I mean, I go to Super Return every year, and they're always like one point seven trillion dollars of dry powder. <laughs> you know, get the yardstick. What is Poxitoni Film going to say about it today? Um, <laughs> yes, but I mean, is so that dry? Is that just always, is that just yeah. always there? Is there always going to be a trillion plus of uh, capital ready to go? I mean, a, a bigger pers let me let me um, pan out to give a slightly bigger perspective, right? So the institutional private markets are in their fourth decade, so it's it's a growing space that continues to attract capital, regardless of prevailing market conditions, because it is a productive place to earn a, a good return. So to your point, yes, I agree with you. I think every year that amount of dry powder is going to grow. Is it a good buying opportunity in front of us? Compared to what it was over the last two years, I would argue most likely, but you've got to pick your way through this market, taking in all of this information that we that's continually getting updated every day. Inflation, interest rates, supply chain, war, all of these factors can drive the long-term value of whatever company you're going to buy in the next year. Right. So you've got to be careful. All right, Andrea, great stuff. Uh, always appreciate getting your perspective on the private equity market. Andrea Auerbach, she's head of private investments at Cambridge Associates. That's located up in Boston High Street, I believe, if I recall. Uh, lots of uh, good PE money sense. up there. Cambridge. Yep. Yep. She went to school there as well. Yep, so I understand. Smith. Yep, exactly right. They got some smart folks up there. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Now, I'm very excited because I get to talk to one of my favorite reporters at yep, Bloomberg and about one of my favorite things. <laughs> um, so Elizabeth Behrman covers, uh, runs the auto coverage for us in Germany, and she's covering the Volkswagen sale along with a team of really great um, journalists, uh, the, the, the IPO of Porsche. Um, she joins us now out of Munich. Elizabeth, thanks so much. Uh, Tell us what we what we know about just the details, the sort of headline details. When is this IPO going to happen? How much are they going to sell? And um, how popular is it right now? Well, it's one of the most exciting deals in Europe uh, today and also for some years. Um, if Porsche, or VW rather, gets this away at the top of the targeted range, which we understand to be a valuation of as much as 85 billion euros, um, it will be Europe's biggest ever um, IPO. And this is happening at a time, of course, you were just talking about it, um, where markets are tanking, conditions are really, really difficult. But this is an iconic sportsmaker and known around the world. And obviously, uh, this is a unique opportunity to invest. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say they make the single greatest sports car in the world. Well, that's big. And, um, you know, almost at any price... And at one time, I remember covering Porsche when I first started at Bloomberg in Frankfurt. It was the most profitable car maker in the world. This is before the whole debacle where they tried to sort of behind the back of the market buy Volkswagen and it backfired and then <laughs> Volkswagen. Volkswagen ended up buying them. But um, they still are, they still have to be, Elizabeth, one of the most profitable car makers out there, right? They absolutely are. Um, usually their, um, their returns uh, are around 15 to 18 percent. Um, that's that's still quite a way below Ferrari, um, obviously. And, and that's one of the car makers they're chasing as well. Um, probably they won't get to um, you know, Ferrari levels, but they have. In terms of valuations, to, you mean? Um, no, you... in terms of returns on from selling cars. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, I was just thinking in terms of because everybody has used Ferrari as kind of a measuring stick um, when comparing car makers. Uh, I think they are worth like twenty times earnings, and other car makers like in the U.S. are worth like five to six. Um, and then you've got a, a company like Tesla that just comes and blows things away. Um, where do we expect to see Porsche? And we're not exactly sure yet, but um, they are certainly targeting that luxury premium where Ferrari is, is settled at. And that's also what they've been telling investors, that they can add certain features, that they can translate the excitement that obviously with you as well, these vehicles <laughs> generate into a much bigger valuation than where they currently are um, in, inside the, the VW stable. Again, if they get to that valuation of $85 billion, that would be roughly on par with the entire value of VW. So, Elizabeth, I understand that there's some weird shareholder structure thing here, the Porsche family and all that kind of stuff. Can you, and some people think that that might be or could be a little bit of a drag on valuation. Could you explain that? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's hellishly complex. You, you would know about this because you were around at the time of, of the uh, big takeover battle between Porsche and VW. But essentially, um, VW is a family-run business and Porsche before the takeover was also a family-run business. And this deal is very much driven also by the Porsche PA billionaire family clan trying to get back a modicum of influence on decision making um, at Porsche. It's too complex to get into this in, in this radio interview right now, but what the family will emerge with if this deal goes ahead is a blocking minority stake. <clears throat> which will allow them to influence decisions on where to make cars, for instance, on, on the key decisions right. in future. So they'll, be, they'll own it again. By the way, John Tucker was talking about Ferdinand Porsche earlier. He's the original family member who yep. designed the Volkswagen Bug and then the 356 and so on. Then he had a son, Ferry, who designed, um, I think, the 928, which is what Tom Cruise drove right. in Risky Business. And wow. then Wolfgang Porsche is the grandson, but his cousin... Um, what was Pisha's? I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on Friedrich. What was Pisha's first name? I'm blanking on Pisha's first name. <laughs> Ferdinand, Ferdinand. 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 Pisch. Okay, so Pisch was uh, uh, Wolfgang's cousin. He ran Volkswagen. He's the one who made all these huge takeovers. He bought all these marquee brands like right. Bugatti and Ducati. And it'll be interesting to see how Porsche um, does. It won't be completely outside of the Volkswagen family. They're going to have the same CEO for Porsche and for Volkswagen, and they'll still be able to use the same resources. Yeah, absolutely. And and that dual role, just to come back to your earlier question as well, um, that's also triggering governance concerns because the question that is raised, of course, then, well, how independent is Porsche really ever going to be if you've got the same guy running the show? Hmm. Our, I, I, I know the, the economy in Europe in particular is rough. Is anybody buying these expensive cars? I mean, what's the forecast for? Who's not? Dude, the luxury try and market. get a GT3 right now. You'll be on a two-year waiting list. If really? If they let you on it. Yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, the, the well, less expensive is, cars are bigger, are you know easier to get. But yeah, tell us about the, the sales right now. And it, we had some positive sales news out of in terms of cars out of Europe today, didn't we? Yeah, exactly. I mean, on the face of it, it looked as though the market is getting better across Europe. But I mean, it's been a year of declines. Um, mostly because um, there weren't enough um, semiconductors to build cars. Um, but now what we're seeing is that the inflation concerns, the concerns about energy bills are increasingly driving consumer behavior. So while we had a, a rise this month, uh, last month, that's still way below what we had in 2019. And, and just to come back to Porsche, I mean, this is what the bankers on the deal and what the Porsche execs will have been telling investors as they've been road showing this, um, which is they they would have been telling them, well, we're Porsche, we're a top luxury car maker, <laughs> we're, we're an iconic brand. We're kind of exempt from all of that. And to an extent, that's true as well, I, would, I suppose. It's, 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 when does this still happen? Yeah. When, when can I buy my stock? Yeah, what, what day are we looking at, Elizabeth? Um, it's not completely official yet, but it will be very, very shortly at some point this month. All right. Good stuff. That's going to be really interesting. I think yeah. a lot of people are going to be just go nuts over this deal. All right, Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Elizabeth Behrman, I got to tell you about team leader, Bloomberg. You know, the quality also of these cars is just, it's another level, right? Because right. I got my uh, 911 Carrera S and 991 in 2014. Never had any kind of 
mechanical, never have any mechanical issue or even electronics issues, right? Meanwhile, a lot of people, you go out and you buy a new truck, and then two weeks later, <laughs> your uh, front collision warning light is on, Uh-oh. your cruise control isn't working, the, chips. the lane split, lane keep assist isn't working, and you know, two weeks into your purchase, and you got these kind of problems. <laughs> we'll see about it. All right, Porsche IPO. That's going to be fun. All right, it looks like the railroad guys that got a deal done with their union, so the freight will continue moving. That is good news for everybody who depends on that kind of stuff and good news for the U.S. economy. Let's bring on Tony Hatch. Tony's been covering the railroad and trucking industry for decades on Wall Street. He's got his own consulting company, ABH Consulting. Um, He's the guy to go to. Tony, thanks so much for joining us here. It seems like a pretty good deal. It seems like the workers got a lot of what they were looking for. And I guess it's good for the railroads because they continue to move stuff around. What do you think? <laughs> so um, I never thought there would have, was going to be a strike. Um, you you recall yep. the process. This is just um, a part of the process. This is just the ongoing la- uh, wage negotiations and how the process plays out with under the Railway Labor Act where it goes on forever and there are all these cooling off periods. What's different about it this time is that labor had a lot of cards to play, labor shortages in general, supply chain issues, Democratic House, Democratic White House, uh, rail service issues making railroads already in the penalty box yep. in Washington, right? So the rail, the rail labor leaders did the smart thing, which is go to the very end of the, of the story. Why settle early? Every day you wait is pressure on them. And by waiting till almost the last minute, right. uh, they were able to secure an additional $11,000 bonus and some changes <laughs> in work rules about how attendance is kept, literally, and uh, sick days. So they've got a pretty fine package. Hopefully they'll ratify it. From the, from the railroad point of view, all of their service issues and their lack of growth issues come down to labor shortage. High attrition, uh, the great resignation, um, et cetera, et cetera. It takes nine months to, to, from hiring to putting somebody in the field. Uh, it's a network business, so shortages in small regions can affect the entire continent. So the rail, for railroads, if they get labor peace, that's a big victory. They need to get people yep. into the field and pick up pent-up demand. So, Tony, one of the things I learned about, you know, kind of reading all this stuff about, um, you know, the conditions for the workers is this precision railroading has really been tough on rail workers. Explain that side of the story and what precision railroading is. So this is a, you know, I could take up the rest of your time, and I know you got the pound <laughs> to talk about, but precision scheduled railroading is um, – you know, Hunter Harrison was a famous, now a late uh, rail CEO. And it's really a, a way of, of doing more with less and trying to bring full schedule into a railroad. Railroads were only semi-scheduled before. You would hold a train to get more volume to justify moving that train because of the high cost of a train start. And Hunter reversed that and said, move the trains. That If we move them regularly, we'll get the volume eventually. Uh, and in so doing, we need fewer of everything, including people. Uh, that process, which worked so well in Canada, was brought to the U.S. starting in 2017. Didn't work well for the people. And, and I was just going to say that it was mostly over with. It is being used as the, as the boogeyman by labor and by uh, Washington regulators and whatnot. It's not the cause, really, of this issue. The, 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 the railroads have really sort of gone beyond the cost-cutting phase by the beginning of the pandemic. The pandemic is the cause. That w- when people didn't come back, uh, the rail workers who had to deal with the recovery, if you remember in the second half of 2020, all the people who were out there who were working were working doubly hard. Uh, it was, they were just stressed. They were massively impacted by Omicron. Uh, you could line up rail labor and uh, vaccines in a, in a complete opposite order, right? And you can, uh, 
they, they so all of this stress has been attributed to PSR. PSR, like any kind of just-in-time system, and this instead of by a just-in-time by a shipper, this is by a carrier, if you will. That that makes the system a little more fragile, and I won't say it didn't contribute to the problems once they got a shock, but they aren't the cause of the problem. The shock was. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about um, the conditions because I suspected that the uh, media to which I listen is mostly just super lefties. But I, I heard, you know, they weren't getting any sick days. There's like one guy running a whole train um, and uh, they haven't gotten a raise in forever. Uh, it just seemed like they were due for a for a good deal. Well, well here's the deal. Under the Railway Labor Act, you know, they didn't get a raise because once your contract, the, the terms are up, the contract is in perpetuity. The terms are up. It's ready to go. You're, you're working under the old rules. They didn't get a raise Every three years they go through this process, and it actually turns into a, a five-year process where you get back pay. So they got back pay. That is a normal, I mean, for 70 years that's going on. They did not get a raise because they, the, the rail managers were cheap. They couldn't give them a raise because they didn't have a new contract yet. Until they ratify this contract, they won't get the raise. That is, they, they wouldn't have accepted a raise when railroads tried to give them some, in fact, in order to get people to go because they didn't want that to impact this national round of negotiations. They were working harder. There is no doubt about it. They also were politically astute enough to see that railroads had become public issues as part of the supply chain crisis, you know, that so dominated, say, the spring and summer. They were called in three separate hearings to be taken to the woodshed by their regulator, the SDB. So rail labor is definitely been pounding the table about this because they know that if they had gone on strike, the ultimate arbiter of their wages is Congress. Right. So why not okay. plant seeds, you know, publicly in all those lefty publications that I like to read? That's right. <laughs> exactly. All right, Tony, thank you so much. Uh, next time we're getting you in the studio because we got a whole supply chain thing we want to go down. Tony Hatch, consultant and analyst at ABH Consulting. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. 
Let's bring in Lee Klaskow. He's the uh, finally senior analyst covering all the transportation stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Lee, we got a million things to talk about. We spoke with your old buddy Tony Hatch uh, earlier this morning about the train stuff. Lee, That's, everybody, I got to tell you, everyone for days has been like, get Lee Klasko on the horn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he's probably on a beach somewhere knowing him. But Lee, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start with FedEx. Man, that stock's taking a beating today. Didn't people know there's kind of recession issues out there, supply chain issues out there? Yeah, but, you know, there are all those things. But, you know, what I would say about FedEx and the pre-announcement, which was extremely disappointing, uh, to say the least, is that, you know, a lot of what FedEx is facing is not the macro. It's really company-specific. Uh, their express business, which is a lot of their international stuff, has really suffered because of uh, an integration with TNT. It's an acquisition they bought over ah. six years ago. Uh, and it's really having problems, because they did mention specifically in the release that, uh, you know, they were dealing with... With, with some uh, service issues in Europe. And we just, you know, read that as, you know, TNT and, you know, uh, the fact that it's going to take even longer for this acquisition to pay off. And the whole, you know, genesis of the acquisition back in 2016 was just to put it on better footing against UPS and, and Deutsche Post. And and just, just on, on those two other competitors, you know, Deutsche Post held a capital markets day on September 8th, and they didn't see anything as terrible as FedEx is seeing. And UPS had a sell-side event on September 9th, and they maintained their uh, 2022 outlook. So wow. uh, a lot of this, you know, listen, I'm not going to say that everything's fantastic and the world is, is great. Well, you know, the world is great, but, like, <laughs> demand, demand is moderating. The economy is moderating. Inflation is real. It's impacting demand. But, you know, it's not in, in a way that, you know, we're seeing uh, in the shares of FedEx because we just think that that is really company-specific. And, you know, FedEx has had a long line of um, of disappointing announcements, uh, to, to be frank. Uh, you know, they really need to focus on uh, their operations. Mm. A, lot of, a lot of analysts kind of question the, the, the ground and express separate models, uh, networks. Uh, being more like a UPS, a more integrated uh, provider. You know, the, the fact is that the express margins uh, from the release in, in, in the, one, the first quarter are about 1.7% uh, versus 5.2% last year. Um, the ground, you know, their goal is to get to double-digit margins. It was only 85 uh, And what I will say is that their less-than-truckload business, which is FedEx Freight, is on fire. It, uh, they've had margins of 24% at FedEx Freight um, in, in the first quarter, and a lot of that is not because of volume. It's because they have great pricing power in that business, and, and that's a, a real strong business. And some of its competitors are, are companies like uh, Old Dominion and XPO. But the issue you're saying, so FedEx is worse off than Deutsche Post and UPS. Still, um, the world, as awesome as it is, has seen, or at least, let's say, the port of L.A. has seen a plunge in shipments. The biggest plunge, um, the story came out yesterday, the L.A. port saw the biggest plunge in shipments since um, the pandemic, early in the pandemic era. So things are slowing down. Yeah, and I, what I'll also say to that, and I don't mean to always find the silver lining or the or the positive in the world. Because I mean, Lee's really not that positive a guy. I, mean, <laughs> I think I might say half I like glass it. empty. Kind I like of guy. I like it. I like it. <laughs> But like uh, on the ports, if you think about it, you know, the peak season is probably going to be relatively muted this year. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that retailers were ordering way ahead in mm. advance because they were afraid of the delays. I mean, the port backup used to be, I think it was the peak was 109 ships. Now it's like um, um, 
10 or 11 yeah, or 8. Uh, uh, so it, it's down significantly. And so a lot of that freight probably came in probably in July for the holiday season. I know that sounds crazy because peak yep. season usually starts around September. Uh, and, and so we're, we're facing more difficult comparisons from last year. Um, you know, and some of that inventory, I was at a conference uh, earlier in the week and uh, uh, someone from the National uh, uh, Retail Federation was speaking. And he pointed out like a really interesting fact that inventory le- our levels are high at certain retailers and certain parts of the market, but also inventory levels are low at other parts of the market. I know Matt's going to like to talk about it, the automotive industry. You know, they, they have low inventories. So it's it's not there, – there's some definitely weakness in the market, but there's also pockets of strength that people can look towards. 30 seconds. Where are we in terms of getting through the supply chain problem? Honestly, um, since the pandemic, uh, it's been one thing after the next. You yeah. mentioned the rail strike. You know, the fact that the rails kind of started closing shop ahead of a strike, it's going to take weeks before that even gets back to normal. Before so, that, the you know, war in Ukraine – I mean, yeah, there's a lot it's going just, on. Yeah. It's just it's just one thing to, to the Queen is to dead. The next. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that is a tragedy. Um, just well, that, it, it's also something that may just really slow down business in Britain, right? I mean, no one's doing anything there except for queuing up to see your coffin. Yeah, and 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 Britain also had a couple of port uh, strikes uh, over the last uh, I think eight weeks. So you know, so they're facing their own internal kind of. Um, Strike, right. striking, um, which is impacting freight flows not oh, only yeah. with them but around the globe. Because if you know if one port has a strike, yep. that means that's going to impact everybody. People have to reroute freight. Right, Lee. Great stuff. We're going to get you back on with Tony Hatch. We'll do a little roundtable here in supply chains. Lee Klaskov, Bloomberg Intelligence. I am very excited. I, I'm honored even to bring really? in a legend in the automotive publication. We, we've had a heck of a lineup today, just industry. by the way. We have had a Eric. great lineup. But uh, this guy um, is someone I've been kind of looking up to for 10 years now. And so is everybody else um, that covers cars. He is the founder, CEO, chairman, and editor-in-chief of Motor Trend Magazine. Ed Lowe joins us to talk about uh, a new award that they're going to, a new awards program that they're going to bring in. So, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate having you uh, today. Talk to us about the Software Defined Vehicle Innovators Award, which I hope you have a better name for that. Yeah, I deserve that, yes. Really, and I can't believe that introduction. Thank you so much. I'll probably walk into the opposite for our group. Uh, it's great to chat with you and catch up. We are launching at Motor Trend um, a, a ton of content around this, this age of the, the software-defined vehicle because, yes, a mouthful. But it's basically about how your car is going to become smarter and your the smartest smartphone out there. Uh, all of the over-the-air updates, all of the new features that are coming. You know, Tesla did this dancing car mode uh, last Christmas. All of these new features are coming throughout the industry. It's massively disruptive. It's going to fundamentally change the way we, you know, interact with, buy, drive, uh, ride in when they become autonomous. These, these new vehicles, and you know, some of that future technology is way off. It's autonomous, for, for instance, is, is uh, quite a far ways off. But we thought it's really important to focus on the innovators, the pioneers, and the leaders, and highlight them. Just like we've been doing with our like power list and our person of the year award, but this is specific to the automotive side. Right. So we just launched this, and it's, it's we're hopeful it's going to get some traction. All right, I'm very excited about it because I have ju- only recently realized how important and how difficult the software side of this is. Uh, I'm going to 
ask my producer, Eric Molo, though, to just quickly disconnect and call you right back because the line is bad. Paul, it's, it's interesting. Right, here, here's my pitch. Yeah. You and I go out to CES this January, and we do a couple of days of shows there because the CES show has only gotten bigger and more important in this economy. For example, the auto industry. I mean, if they have four huge auditoriums set up for CES, I'm going to say two are for the auto industry. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's an auto show with some computers around it. I I'm with you. And they have SEMA also in Vegas. And look, there were, you know, for most of my life, the Detroit Auto Show was the pinnacle event of the year. It was what I looked forward to, you know, after I was seven, even more than Christmas. <laughs> and now, I mean, nobody even knows that the Detroit Auto Show is happening right now. It's yep. just like no one even goes to the Detroit Auto Show. Vegas is where it's at, and really it's all about CES. And that's where Motor Trend is going to hold this new awards program. They're going to do it at CES in January. So, yeah, I'd love to get down there if I can. Out there. Um, out there if I can. <laughs> I, hopefully we have Ed back on the line and we can just talk about why this is so difficult. You know, Herbert Deese, um, retiring from Volkswagen the other day, was saying this, the shift to electric is no problem. That's a slam dunk. Super easy. I okay. mean, yes, Tesla does it better arguably right now than anyone else, but they'll catch up um, and they're going to make leaps and bounds. The shift to um, new software oriented systems, that's hard. That's right. where everybody's failing right now. And um, those who figure out how to do it right are going to be the leaders for sure. Ed, uh, hopefully we have you back on the line here. Who are, who is doing the best in terms of the software side right now? You know, the industry leader has always been the, the actual exemplar of the software-defined vehicle would be Tesla, despite a lot of their, you know, there's some quality concerns around the vehicles. But from the start, they actually built the world's first uh, software-defined vehicle. That is the story that's going to be emerging as we go into automotive history. Everybody thinks they're like the big EV producer, but they put software, they put all the microprocessors and the, the chips all talking to each other into their very first products from the start. And everybody is playing catch up. And if you ask any of the OEMs, they will admit this. And, you know, when you talk to car geeks uh, like Matt, like you, uh, you guys talk about aspirated engines and horsepower and all this kind of stuff. I kind of feel like in the next few years, you're going to be talking about electronics as the differentiator between cars. How big is it going to get? It's a good point. You know, this is a massively, uh, again, I hate to use the word, it's very overused, disruptive time. But I will tell you, as the cars are all coming, the, the OEMs are clearing the decks of internal combustion, gas power, you know, V8s, manual transmissions, all the stuff we know and love is, is going away. There's a lot of people really not happy about that. So while this future of electrified vehicles, of software-defined vehicles is coming, there's a narrative taking place, a bit like in you know, NRA, you'll, you'll take pictures from my cold, dead hands. But the future that's promised and the efficiency and all the things you could do with making the cars better through over-the-air updates. That's the part, along with the reduced part complexity and taking away, you know, you got to take away valves and pistons and cams and all these parts. All this stuff goes away when you just need a battery and a motor, a single-speed transmission. The efficiencies and the creative opportunities with these new cars are really compelling, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Well, this all is of these are going to be fast. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, this it's, is exactly it's, why I think that the that your awards program is so important and so cool. Um, the, 
there are going to be fewer distinctions between electric powertrains, right? Everyone's going to have a fast car. They're all going to be um, right. pretty much maintenance-free. Um, the, the, the powertrain isn't the issue. What's going to make or break you, um, the reason that we're going to prefer a car, uh, one car over the other or not, is the design, obviously, which has always been the case, but the software and the way it works with you on the inside. And that's what I think no one gets. Everybody knows we're going to electric. Nobody understands or fewer people maybe understand, um, and now you're highlighting it, the importance of um, the code. Exactly. And this, I mean, you nailed it. You, should, can, you want to drop? Like, this, you have absolutely uh, crystallized it, which is everybody knows EVs are quick. Tesla, Lucid, Rivian, yeah. they've all shown this, right? Uh, we're going to solve for the range issue. There are cars now that are getting easily 300, 400, even 500 miles of electric range. We're solving for the recharge time. You can go to 20 to 80% on some of these large batteries in 30 minutes. So EVs, once all of that, unfortunately, all that performance is uh, all of these car brands have to figure out how do I differentiate my brand from the other guys? And it's going to be about right. the experience that's delivered through the code. And we are trying to highlight the people that are driving that change and doing the best. All right. Ed, all I want is BMW to bring back my five, six speed to my BMW five series. But so far, that's not really getting much traction. Ed Lowe, head of editorial at Motor Trend Magazine. I think we got to go out to CES yes. in January. I'm going to make a phone call. Yeah. I mean, do, do, I, I, do I we think know we anybody? I think we definitely want to want to go down there as well. That's going to be where, well, all of the most powerful executives in yep. the industry will be there. In Every industry, too. it seems like, tech and media. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.